Can everyone hear me? Okay, we can make do with this mic. All right. All right, a very good morning to all of you again. Good to see you this morning. For those of you who have not met me yet, my name is Kenneth. I'm one of the pastors here in Samari, and I'll be uh, bringing us through the Book of Numbers uh, this morning. Well, this will be one of those rare occasions in Smack whereby the preacher will tell you not to keep your Bible open. Very rare, okay? Most of the other weeks will say, keep your Bible open. We'll be dealing with these chapters of the Bible. Please stick with me as we go through it together. But as you know, as Tim mentioned, what we're going to do today is going through the whole overview of the whole book of Numbers. So we'll not be referring to specific verses, but we'll be recapping what we've been studying here in SMAC for the past many months, okay? Uh, but before I do that, uh, let me pray to ask God for His help. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that You are a God who gather people to Yourself and You have done that in Christ. Father, You have gathered various kinds of people into Your presence around Your Word this morning. You have gathered those who are suffering and downcast. You have gathered those who are proud and hardened, those who are fresh, those who are tired, those who are distracted those who are rejoicing as well as those who are mourning. Father, you know each one of us personally. And you know, Father, what each one of us need to hear. So we thank you, Father, that you are God who has made yourself known. You show us a way of salvation through faith in your Son. So we ask, Father, that by your Spirit you may teach us this morning that we may be those who walk by faith and not by sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Israel has spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. By next Sunday, Smack would have spent four months wandering in the book of Numbers. Four long months. And our wandering comes to an end today. Okay? This morning, we'll be closing off the series. And it has really been a very good series, don't you think? It's a really good series. How do you feel after having journeyed in Numbers for so long? Does it feel like you have just finished watching 12 weeks worth of documentary and you are now saturated with propositional truths about God? Or does it feel more like you have plotted through 12 long weeks of intense drama or soap? I think it's definitely the later, isn't it? Because Numbers is essentially a story. It is just like 75% of the Bible. Stories that has the ability to draw readers in, to journey with the various characters in the drama, to walk where they walk and to feel what they felt. And stories have a different way of provoking and confronting us, getting under our skin, without hitting us with theological statements. For example, we are not simply commanded, be content. We were shown vividly how foolish grumbling looks. We were not simply told God is holy. We were drawn in to experience the extent of God's holiness. We were not simply told God is faithful. We were drawn in to feel for Him in the face of rebellion and adultery. As we take a moment this morning to recap 40 years of Israel's history, here are some questions that I have in mind concerning this story, this drama that we have been through. 
What is the central theme of this story? And how is it meant to impact us? What effect on us, the readers, is the story meant to have? And what is Numbers uniquely saying about God and His people compared to the other biblical books? Now, this is where I'm going. You see on the first slide with the sermon today. Firstly, I'll give you a quick orientation on the structure and the content of the whole book. Hopefully, that will jot some memories and help you to reflect better. Secondly, I'll bring you through some key themes about God and about humanity that numbers have impressed upon us and we'll reflect together the intended effects that they are meant to have on us. And lastly, I will close off by reflecting on the central theme of the entire book. So let's start with the orientation. Number tells a simple story about a journey. It's just a journey. God has just rescued His people mightily through signs and wonders out of slavery in Egypt. At Mount Sinai, God met with them and God made a covenant with them. Numbers then tell the story of God bringing His treasured people from Sinai to the land that He has promised them. It's like a bridegroom bringing his wife back to the home that He has prepared for her. The whole story can be broken down into three acts. It's slightly from the video that we have watched earlier, but here it is. It started off very positively in chapter 1 to 10, where God was preparing Israel to enter the land. Instructions were given aimed to make Israel fit for God's presence among them to lead them. Here we saw the census, if you remember, and we saw the preparation for the war, the consecration of the people and the camp, the setting up the camp with the tabernacle, and finally setting out from the camp. Then the plot suddenly turned negative in chapters 11 to 21, where things went terribly wrong. The journey turned out to be one that is marked by discontentment and grumbling and the rejection of God's promises. Here we saw the eight complaint stories, if you remember, like the grumbling for meat and fish, the complaint of Miriam and Aaron, the Korah rebellion, the Meribah incident, and many others. But as the story ends in chapter 22 to 36, it turns positive again, where God prepares Israel again. Here we have the Balaam's oracle, the bronze serpent rescue, and the promised land comes back into the picture again. So there's a whole picture of where numbers have brought us so far. Let's now turn to look at some key themes that have arised from this story. Key themes that the stories in number have directed, directed our attention to. There will be four things about God and four things about Israel and humanity. Firstly, the story reveals the centrality and the leading of God. It was clear from right from the beginning of the book, right after Israel was numbered, Israel was numbered, Israel was ordered. They were ordered properly. We were given a very vivid military picture of how different tribes were arranged in the north and south, east and west formation, with the tabernacle right at the center of the camp. We saw that in the uh, video earlier. So there is no doubt who dwells at the center of Israel's life and who is the general. It is God himself who is the general of Israel. And it is from this central position that God leads Israel into battle towards the promised land. God didn't lead from a far away drone control room. No, He was right there with them. His presence was visible as a cloud of pillar of fire over the tabernacle right at the center of the camp. He was with them and He went before them 
to defeat all their enemies. Now, the centrality and the leading of God in Israel's life, as we see in Numbers, is not abstract. It's just not an idea. It is real, and we saw it alive in the Israel's life. So the question for us as people, God's people in smack today, I think, is, is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is present with us now by the Spirit, as the book of Revelation tells us, that He walks among the lampstand, is Jesus Christ the head of our church? Are we led by Jesus individually and as a church? Are we obedient to Jesus, who is at the center of our lives? Or are we and our personal agenda at the center of our life and of our church? Number impresses upon us the centrality and the leading of God among God's people. Secondly, that leads us to our second point that is God's holiness. As the story tells us of God's intimate presence with His people that we saw in point one to lead them, we cannot but notice the immense preparation that is required in order for God to be in their midst. Because God is a holy God. God would never allow His holiness to be forgotten. His people are to fear Him at all times, with reverence and with awe. And God's holiness means danger, for sinful Israel. It means danger for sinful people. We experienced this when we were drawn into the camp. Sinful Israelites cannot simply approach God in their sin. They would be put to death. The first ring of Israelites around the tabernacle could only be the, be the Levites. They are chosen by God to be the priests between Him and the people. All the others literally have to keep a distance from God. Throughout the entire preparation and re-preparation stage, we painstakingly saw the details concerning the consecration of the camp and of the tabernacle and of the priests all the time. And that's because divine presence demands purity in the camp. This vivid picture of God's holiness in numbers is meant to impress upon us the great separation between the holy God and utterly sinful human beings. A separation that only Jesus, the great high priest, can bridge through his atoning death on the cross. Brothers and sisters in Smack, I think this is a reminder for all of us that we are never to take it lightly that sinful people such as us can now approach the holy God through Christ, the appointed mediator of God. And God is holy, we have to remember that, and we are not to take sin lightly. As we were reminded last week, we are to take it ruthlessly because we worship a holy God. Thirdly, the story of number shows us God's power and supremacy. This point is made, could have been made in one sentence. That is, Israel's God, Christian God, is an all-powerful God who is sovereign and supreme over everything. Done in one sentence. But number six to do more than just giving us a propositional doctrinal truth. It draws us in to show us the extent of God's power. He wants us to experience it ourselves. See, firstly, we see in the swiftness of God's judgment whenever Israel disobeyed. 
God's anger is kindled and the fire of the Lord burn and consume the people in masses. 24,000 died by the plague in Shittim. The earth opened up and swallowed up rebellious Israel. In an instant, God struck the grumbling Miriam with leprosy in a second. God's power is also seen in His provision for Israel. God created a wind out of nothing and He brought quail from the sea, if you remember. God brought forth water from the rock in Meribah for His people. And God's supremacy is also seen in His defeat of the enemies. Canaanite King Eret was destroyed and so was King Sihon and King of Og. Even the mighty Balaam that we saw with his black magic had no effect on Israel. Instead, God had complete control over Balaam and Balak. Through these vivid accounts, numbers intend for the readers, you and me, to grasp a real sense of God's sovereign power and supremacy over everything. I knew a Taoist lady who was considering Christianity many years ago. She had many gods around her house in every corner, from the kitchen to the doorstep to the back door, everywhere. She feared that these deities would come after her when she converts. Number tells her, as well as us, that she has nothing to be afraid of, nothing to fear. Jesus, the Son of God, whom she follows, is the Lord of all, the King of kings. He calms the storm, he rebukes the fever, evil spirits fear him and run away. So fear him instead. Next, we'll cross over to consider what numbers impress upon us about Israel and humanity before coming back to God again on point seven. For lack of a better word, I think this is the juiciest part of Numbers. For this is where we see the most action and the most drama. But I'm sure you remember that these are also, for us, some of the most confronting sections of Numbers. In a nutshell, Numbers want to impress upon us just how utterly stubborn Israel is, is in sin. They constantly doubt God, they were always discontented and ungrateful, they were persistently unfaithful and they were resolute to disobey all the time. Much of this is being put across to us is what is known as their complaint stories, eight of them in total. So firstly, let us consider Israel's ungratefulness. This is evident right from the start. Almost immediately after God gave the command for Israel to set out, they started to complain and complained and complained. They were though, at one point, they were so discontented that they were disillusioned, remember? They grumble and they say, Oh, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But friends, there were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> Pharaoh oppressed them ruthlessly. They lived lives that were bitter. They groaned, they cried out for rescue. God rescued them. But in their discontentment, they went disillusioned. Numbers serve as a mirror to show us how ugly and foolish and disillusioned ungratefulness can lead us and looks. And that is why New Testament reminds us, Christians, to remember that we are those who have been called out of darkness, ransomed from futile ways by the precious blood of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters in SMAC, Numbers reminds us not to despise God's great grace and be thankful. Secondly, let's look at Israel's unbelief. Do you remember the spy incidents in Numbers 13? God sent Israel to spy out Canaan to have a glimpse of the good land that He promised. This is almost the climax of Israel's history, that they are finally going into the land. The spies returned, what did they do? They grumbled. The land that we spy devoured its inhabitants, they say. The people there are too great for us, that they would have died in Egypt, that would be better. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and die there? At the heart of Israel's grumbling, beneath that fear is ultimately unbelief. They refused to enter ultimately because they did not believe in God. They did not believe in His power. They did not believe in His promises. They did not believe in His goodness at all. God grieved over Israel saying, How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Israel's unbelief is one of her most vividly portrayed character in Numbers. A generation who experienced the mighty exodus, who witnessed the cloud of the Lord over them, who witnessed many judgments of God, how did they respond? They responded in unbelief. A new generation, a second generation, who experienced the wiping off of entire generation, their fathers and their grandfathers, how did they respond? They still responded in unbelief. Numbers simply impress upon us, the readers, how deeply ingrained unbelief is in Israel and in humanity. In the Mark Gospel, an epileptic boy cried out to Jesus saying, I believe, help my unbelief. This is a good prayer. It acknowledges that without God, we cannot believe as we ought to believe. Why would you wake up tomorrow morning and I wake up tomorrow morning still believing in God? It is only because God helps us to. So at SMAC, let us be thankful to God for our faith and let us pray that He would sustain it, strengthen it, and deepen it for His glory. Thirdly, incident after incident, number was most clear in showing us how disobedient Israel was towards God at their hearts. When God commanded them through Moses and Caleb to charge and occupy Canaan, they refused to enter. When Moses told them not to attack, for the Lord is not with them, they attacked instead. Israel was basically the master of their own lives, listening and obeying only to themselves and not to God. On numerous occasions, they defied Moses and Aaron's leadership. That revealed their blatant rejection of God and their disobedience towards Him. And the climax of Numbers' portrayal of Israel's disobedience came at Meribah, when even Moses, their leader himself, disobeyed God. Instead of talking to the rock as God instructed, Moses struck the rock twice. The stark disobedience and rebellion of Israel impressed upon us in Numbers is picked up again and again in the book of Hebrews when they warned the believers. Hebrews 3 says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. And Israel's disobedience also prepares us to rejoice in the perfect obedience of Christ, which brought us eternal life. Being found in the appearance of a man, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here in Smack, every time that we hear God's voice, maybe in Bible study or in sermon or in our personal devotion, every time we hear His voice, do not harden his, our hearts. Respond in trust and obedience. May we be in Smack, be known not only as one that is with biblical teaching and training, but be known as a church that is full of obedience and trust to Jesus. Lastly, Numbers is most vivid in showing us Israel's unfaithfulness and adulterous hearts. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to haul with the daughters of Moab. This invited the people to sacrifices to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked herself to Baal of Peor. That was about three weeks ago. And as if that isn't vivid enough, Numbers chosen a real case scenario by telling us an Israelite Zimri brought Cosby, a Midianite woman, right into the midst of lamenting Israel and is seen blatantly before them. God made a covenant with Israel in Sinai. While bringing his beloved wife home to the promised land, his beloved went slipping around, committing adultery with the foreign gods. Israel was adulterous and idolatrous at heart. Israel's unfaithfulness impressed upon us as a church shows us how adulterous human heart is. John Calvin himself puts it rightly to say that our hearts is an idol factory. No wonder, I think, the Apostle Paul said when he was warning the church in Corinth against idolatry, he quoted numerous times from Numbers. He said that these things took place as an example for us, that we may not desire evil as they did, and that we should flee, we would flee from idolatry. Here in Smack, we have to remember that we cannot share the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons at the same time. We cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of the demons at the same time. While we worship God, what idols are we comfortably worshipping every day? Let us ask God for His help again to flee from these idols. Well, that last point on what numbers has impressed upon us about Israel and humanity leads us nicely to the final point on God. Point seven, uh, previous slide again. In stark contrast with Israel's unfaithfulness, Numbers impresses upon us God's faithfulness. As the story of Numbers impresses upon us, Israel's propensity to disobedience and disbelief, their constant doubt and rejection of God, Numbers magnifies all the more God's faithfulness. More specifically, Numbers impresses upon us 
God's faithfulness to His promises to Abraham concerning the land. God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness becomes very vivid in Numbers. So vivid that it leaves us readers at all saying perhaps, now that is a trustworthy God. And now that is a gracious and a compassionate God. And this, I think, brings us close to the central theme of the whole book. After having journeyed in Numbers and with Numbers for so long, what would you say to be the heart of the story? If you were to ask to describe to a new person that just visited Smack One today, how would you describe it in one sentence, what the book of Numbers is all about? Or if you're someone like Yvonne who is visually a visual learner, how would you picture it of what Numbers is all about? Well, this is my take on what Numbers is all about. Next slide. Number confronts us with a holy God who will be faithful to His promises and will be with His people to lead them in the face of their stubborn unfaithfulness and rejection of Him. Numbers confronts us with a holy God who will be faithful to His promises and be with His people to lead them in the face of their stubborn unfaithfulness and rejection of Him. That, I think, is the central theme of Numbers. That is, while holding up Israel as a mirror for us to show us what wretched sinners we are in and of ourselves, Numbers is not just screaming at us, you lousy sinners. While it is doing that, Numbers blows us away with a faithful and a loving God. So worthy is He of our trust and obedience because He's so faithful in light of our unfaithfulness. Let me end by reading to you what Pakula, that's, a, that's the name of this uh, writer, says about the book of Numbers. And I found it very helpful. He says this, We will never obey God in our own strength and enter the land. That's why Israel, in the end, was exiled from the land. However, God promised a new covenant and a new heart for His people by which we would be led to obey God and be forgiven our sins. In the end, Jesus is the only one who truly obeys God. He alone enters heaven, God's promised inheritance, through His perfect obedience. By His blood shed on the cross, He enters ahead of us, prepares a place for us, and cleanses us by His blood of the new covenant so that we can enter God's promised inheritance with our sins forgiven, with cleansed hearts. Yet we are too on a pilgrimage. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 pick up the disobedience of the first generation and apply the lesson to Christians. We are on our way to the promised inheritance. But if we refuse God, as the Israelites did, if we reject Jesus, rejecting God's plan, then we will not enter God's rest. God's promised inheritance. Thus, on our pilgrimage as He ends to heaven, we are warned against disobeying as the Israelites did. 1 Corinthians refers many times to the incidents in the book of Numbers, warning Christians not to disobey the Israel as the Israelites did. And we are encouraged that God is faithful to His promises, that He has kept them in Jesus, and will bring us safely into the promised rest. Let me end with that.
Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous work that you have done over the past four months in the book of Numbers. Father, we thank you that you are a transcendent God. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what are the words that we need to hear. You know what areas of our lives that need to be corrected and rebuilt to be strengthened and to be encouraged. And you've done that numerous ways through your word. And we thank you for feeding us your word. Father, we thank you above all for reminding us of what a great God you are, worthy of all praise, that you are a faithful God. And we've seen your faithfulness, Father, on the cross. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who died for our sins, sins of those who disobeyed you, sins of those who rebelled against you. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you that through him, we have now been redeemed and now brought into your family. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit, the Spirit of your Son in our lives now to put to death our sinful self, to put to death the idols that we worship. So we ask that the Spirit may be at work in each and every one of us in our church that will turn from worshipping idols to worship the true and living God, rejoicing in having a loving, compassionate, a steadfast love and a faithful God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers has taught us that God's faithfulness is greater than the faithlessness of his people. What a great encouragement that he will bring us, his people,